We've got some big news to tell you about from our partners at Conservative Review. Coming this December, it's CRTV, a brand new commercial-free digital network featuring Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, and Mark Stein. You get all of this content anywhere you go, your laptop, tablet, cell phone, or even on Roku or Apple TV. And you can have all of this programming for a year for only $89 if you sign up before December 1st at CRTV.com. But to get that special price, you've got to use my name at the checkout, Dace. That's D-E-A-C-E. So go to CRTV.com and sign up today. Levin, Malkin, Stein, all for $89 a year. If you go to CRTV.com today and use the promo code DACE. All right, before we get started with this podcast, we need to talk about something. Friends, it, it feels like the whole world can literally change for the worse overnight. You're following the news stories. With what's likely coming for our country, there is one thing you should do, and that's prepare. When you're more self-reliant, you're closer to freedom from any national crisis or job loss or economic downturn. But where do you start, and who can you trust? Let me make this clear. Building an emergency food supply to feed yourself and your family is a wise first step. And our friends at My Patriot Supply will help you prepare. Get four weeks emergency food supply for only $99, shipped free. That's 140 adult servings of easy-to-prepare food. Order today, 888-457-3453, 888-457-3453, or go online at preparewithcr.com. That's preparewithcr.com. Build your emergency food supply for only $99. Limit two units per caller, 888-457-3453, or online at preparewithcr.com. That's 888-457-3453, or at preparewithcr.com. All right, now let's get to the podcast. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Good evening. Thanks for tuning in tonight on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review. Here on the Salem Radio Network, we love to know what you think about what we think, so let us know. Steve at SteveDace.com is how you can email the program. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. A lot of interesting stuff to get to tonight. We're looking forward to a conversation later this evening. We're going to talk manhood, the state of masculinity in America coming up a little bit later on tonight. Also, if you missed it on Tuesday, I had the good pleasure of being on the Glenn Beck program again, courtesy of the Glenn Beck radio show. We're going to play some of those excerpts for you later on in hour number three tonight. But uh, folks, where I want to begin is part of the conversation that I had with Glenn on Tuesday. Because if you recall, last night we said on the show that we're going to be spending a lot of time watching the left. You know, one of the things I think that we have as a challenge when we do this show every night, even though as listening patterns change more and more, fewer and fewer people as the years go on listen to these things live and listen to them on demand when it's convenient. So maybe in a few years I'll feel differently. But still a lot of people, you know, you do listen to us when we're actually on. 
which means, you know, a lot of us have the same listeners to the same shows, just some of us have more of them than others, but it's, it's largely the same pool of people listening to them. And so when we come on at nine o'clock Eastern, we have advantages and disadvantages. One of the advantages are that we get a chance to take a look. You can start to see a new cycle develop for the next day. So we can kind of get ahead of it a little bit sometimes, right? You know, so, so we can talk about tomorrow's headlines tonight. But one of the disadvantages is when that's not the case, what are we going to say that a whole bunch of people that might even be a lot smarter than us haven't said about the same stories before we have a chance to say anything, right? So we like to zig a lot on this show when others zag because of that. So I know right now a lot of people in our industry, every show every day is the minutiae. And getting, uh, you know, fixated on the, uh, the, the, late, the rumor mill from the Trump transition team. But we just talked on the show last night. We're not going to do that. Even though there's some juicy ones out there. Apparently Mitt Romney's coming in to meet with uh, President-elect Trump this weekend about Secretary of State. That has a lot of tongues wagging. And there's some, you know, Romney took a lot of heat four years ago for talking about war- Putin and warning about Russia as a, as a phantom menace, so to speak. And of course, Trump's often been accused of being a Putin fanboy. So how would that work? Yeah, we could have a very interesting conversation about that. But what would we say that everyone else hasn't already said? And, and so we like to find, to borrow a phrase from Shakespeare, the undiscovered country sometimes on this show. And, and what is interesting out there that we need to be paying more attention to? I'm very interested in how the left reacts to this election. Because they are still one half of the equation. And we do still have to share a country with one another. Whether we we want to share it or not, that is the reality of the situation. So we do have a vested interest in how they think and what goes on over there. There is an article. Along those lines, there's an article at 538. That was published earlier this week. And the headline is, Americans may be too religious to embrace socialism. Now what I found fascinating about this is the source is a liberal media outlet, albeit one that does some fantastic work particularly when it comes to statistics and things of that nature and analytics. But, you know, Nate Silver comes from the New York Times. This is, this is liberal media. And yet, they're connecting worldview dots here that we don't. They're making a point here that we often refuse or fail to make on our own side. And it's, it's a point that is vital to sustaining our own argument. It is the ultimate, pardon the phrase, trump card we have in order to defeat theirs. And one of the things that we are seeing increasingly is that the left does a better job of deconstructing our view than we do of constructing it ourselves. 
because there's a whole generation of Americans out there that don't know why this is true, what 538 observes. I would venture, and I don't mean this to be offensive, it's just because we haven't been taught this stuff. I'd venture a lot of you in this audience probably don't know the answer to why this is true. And herein lies the problem. Most of our answers to the, is- to, the, to, the, to the issues and dilemmas of the day are the shallow talking points we get out of a Fox News alert or a Drudge headline. And that's okay when we're talking amongst ourselves. But there is no silent majority anymore. Trump literally bled every last vote out of Appalachia, America. And he still lost the popular vote and won four states by 1.4 points or less. He had fewer votes than Romney. Hillary got several million fewer than Obama. That, that is not a formula for success four years from now. In fact, there's only been one president ever in American history who was reelected by shrinking the support he received in the previous election. Well, there's been three. I take that back. But the previous two, they did it when World War I and World War II were going on. So the percentage of available voting age population was not as available. That's FDR and Woodrow Wilson. Do you know the only other man to ever accomplish this? Barack Obama. It is Barack Obama. Yeah, Todd is correct. It was Barack Obama. Presidents in this country historically get reelected 70% of the time. Which means... Every other case, they won by growing their base. Trump's going to have to grow his base to win four years from now. I I don't know how he could possibly perform better given the demographics and the aging demographic of his rural American base, how he could do better, turn more of those people out than he did four years, than than he did two weeks ago. Which means if he's going to grow that base to get reelected four years from now, he's going to have to do what? He's going to have to add to it. Add some people that either didn't show up or didn't vote for him. What have we talked a lot about on this show? We are now in an evangelistic era. We have to add people to our multitude. This is not We're no longer in the era of dog whistles. Where we say a few catchphrases and then a bunch of people pour out of the pews and to the polls, and overrun America. We just might have had the greatest collective turnout of orthodox religious voters for one candidate we've ever seen in American history, and it was barely enough to win. Barely. Needed to have a perfect storm to make it happen. So, yes, you got to win on November 8th. Maybe a reprieve might be more like it. But there is still some long-term demographic challenges to meet. And I don't believe we can meet them unless we can make the argument that the left is actually making in this article. Why would Americans be too religious to embrace socialism? Can we answer that argument? Do we know why that is true? Is it not amazing to hear a liberal media outlet say this out loud? Because for most of our lives, they've tried to make the case that Jesus was a socialist, that Jesus was Che Guevara in Guru Garb, that Christianity embraces socialism. Whether it is uh, the emergent church movement in Protestantism, which is essentially just the old Marxism, 
with Bible verses, or what has happened to a lot of Catholicism in Latin America that has embraced Marxism as part of the church. This has actually been the argument that we are accustomed to seeing from the left. The idea that socialism and Christianity actually are intertwined. They're one and the same. It is fascinating to see them now be honest about the fact that they are not. And that actually the more devoted one is to the orthodoxy of their Judeo-Christian religion, the less likely they are to embrace socialism. Why is that true? This is the kind of question we're going to have to be able to answer to win the next generation. And we're going to answer it when we come back. Listening to Steve Dace. Never attack when you're not willing to kill. This is Steve Dace. So, five thirty-eight has an article out. Why Americans may be too religious to embrace socialism. Looking at this from the left's point of view, and again, it's interesting because they have tried to convince us that our religion is compatible with socialism. So now 538 wants to say, well, maybe Americans are too religious to embrace socialism. Well, both of those things cannot be true, right? Which means all those years they told you that our religion was compatible with socialism. That was a lie. These socialist Christians like Jim Wallace and the like, that's an oxymoron. They're not, they, they might be sincere Christians in their hearts. I, I don't know. I, I don't know them enough personally to know if the fruits of repentance are in their lives, right? You know, we don't know that. But in terms of the ideology that they are putting forth, it is not based on the Word of God. It is based on Marxism. That's what they're preaching. They're preaching Marxism. And the reason why is because Marxism-Socialism is not compatible with Christianity. That's why they have to replace Christianity with Marxism. But we still have to be able to answer the question, why is this true? Because the real demographic nightmare we face is not Hispanics. It's Aaron and his generation. They are poised to blitzkrieg us in the next decade or two. And if you and I don't know the answers to these kinds of questions, I can guarantee you, neither do they. In fact, I would imagine millennial head, millennial went splo, millennials went splody head all over America when they tuned into 538 on Tuesday and saw an article that said Americans might be too religious to embrace socialism. Because, of course, Aaron, you guys have been taught what? That's one and the same. They're one and the same. But they're not. See, the ultimate goal of socialism is the elevation of the supremacy of the state. There is no higher law other than the law proclaimed by the state. The state determines the centralization, the collectivization, the redistribution. The state is in whom you live and breathe. The state is the most powerful vehicle entity. The state is, for lack of a better description, 
God. Well, you're going to have a very difficult time elevating the state to a God-like status if there already is a God. Which, which is why, in every nation that has embraced socialism, secularization has actually proceeded or preceded the rise of the state. There cannot be two gods. You know, for all the talk that the socialists give you about diversity, and there's many paths to heaven, you know, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me, the state has their version of that as well. See, the state likes to preach diversity until it has dominance. And then diversity, isn't that it back on the bumper, man? It's up in smoke, baby. It's diversity, smirchity. All right, it's gone. He gone. There is no diversity. There is diversity until dominance, and then, Todd, there is conformity. And if you do not want to conform, you will be made to care. Did you just combine Cheech and Chong with Duck Dynasty? I did. That was pure genius. Did you like that? In a highbrow philosophical argument, no other radio program in America can do it because... This is not how you attract listeners, but gosh darn it, it's what we're going to do anyway. And that's why I signed up for this a year ago. That's the only, it's the only thing I know how to do is this. He so brought his B do. game, folks. He brought his B game. Which is the best I've got. So you can't have two gods. There's going to be one or the other. Now, in Christianity, the individual is elevated. The New Testament preaches that you, as an individual, you can, quote, boldly approach the throne of grace, meaning you, as an individual, do not require an intercessor to have communion with the most powerful being in the cosmos. You may have it individually. In fact, Emmanuel, which we're going to be singing that carol here soon, means God with us. And so at Christmas, God comes in the form of a helpless babe. He then, after his ascension, sends his spirit so that he returns again and is born again in you as a believer. God literally lives inside of you. That's when you read the New Testament. What's this helper that Jesus is talking about? That's what he means. He sends his spirit now to live inside of you. You have daily, regular communion with the most powerful being in the universe, which puts great emphasis on the individual. In the American, in our view, there aren't, that's why there aren't group rights. There's not gay rights. There's not Christian rights. There's not Jewish rights. There's not secular rights. There's not Asian rights. There's not even human rights. There's not civil rights. There's God-given rights. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That you do not need to belong to a class, to a religion, to a sect, to a gender, in order to obtain these rights. They are just given to you as the imago Dei. You as an individual made in the image of God, he has counted the hairs on your head. He has numbered your days. He has knit you in your mother's innermost womb. And so because of that, you have value. Every bit as value as anybody else, regardless of their station or status in life. 
That is the view of liberty. That's the view of freedom. That's why we constructed a constitution that limited the size and scope of the government. Not the individual. Because what needed to be constrained so that the individual may soar? Government. Government had to be constrained so that the individual could thrive. This is why we originally had a restitution-based criminal justice system. We had chain gangs. If you broke Grandma Moses' window while playing yard, backyard baseball, you paid to have it fixed. There were no, quote, crimes against society. You made restitution. That's what the Mosaic Law was when it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was restitution. That's what it was. You had to return what you had taken from somebody else that did not belong to you. But see, we've lost all of this. And now we serve a collective. A people that holds on to their religious roots does so because they desire that individual relationship between themselves and their creator. This is why we are still too religious of a people to embrace socialism. This is why socialism is always preceded or proceeded by secularization. There will only be one God in every society. God or the state. Listening to Steve Dace. Hoisting them by their own petards, the Steve Day Show. Coming up here in about 10 minutes, this week's edition of Buy, Sell, or Hold. Gentlemen, let's double back on the conversation we just had, responding to 538. With the left wondering now, are we too liberal, I'm sorry, too religious to accept socialism? And the answer, of course, is yes, but they're looking at this equation, or from, or they're looking at this question from their side of the equation, so they're deconstructing our view. I wanted to reconstruct our view, because I'm not sure how many people on our side of the aisle know why that is true. Your reaction to what we just discussed, Todd? Well, what you're describing is a sort of de Tocqueville redux. And the fact that when I say that, most people say, de Tocqueville who? Exactly. That's the problem. America is great because she is good. And if she ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. Okay, well, what does it mean to be good then? We need to get far better and focused at talking about we must begin our sentence with a capital God. And we must end our sentence with the punctuation God. And everything in between must start with that as our Alpha and our Omega. It's... It, it's it's more complicated than that in the telling once you start. But the premise is that easy. And de Tocqueville swooped in here from France and said, wow, and gave one of the best descriptions of what you're talking in American history. Maybe we want to start there. And one of the observations de Tocqueville made, Aaron, is the reason that liberty was setting root here in this country quicker and firmer and ter- with more terra firma than it was in his following his nation's revolution is because their, their revolution over there was largely a secular 
tantrum. Mm-hmm. This this revolution pour, was poured out of the churches. It was it was a religious cause. And and this idea that that government isn't God, but God is God. That government we're not we're we're going to go beyond the Magna Carta. Government's not going to secure our rights. God has already preordained them. Government's job is therefore to recognize that. And if government doesn't recognize that God has preordained our rights, guess what we do to said government? Woodshed time. Yeah, we dissolve it. That's that's what we do. Uh, and 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 of course, if an individual is empowered to now have a, have that level of a relationship with God, that also means he's individually accountable to who? God. God. Mm-hmm. Which means, by the way, you cannot have what we call America without recognition of who? God. 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 It all begins there. That's where I was going to go with, with my observation. It, it, it's a wonder sometimes why when we hear progressives um, take a look back and um, try, if, they, if you can even get them to do that, to answer the question, why, out of all of the nations on God's green earth throughout human history, why did America rise to the height that it did so relatively quickly? And they will always avoid what you just pointed out, Steve. That's because of God, and it's because our founders uh, devised a constitution, devised a government that recognized that human beings, we as human beings, were not the exception to the rule here in the United States. They recognized that we were not, and thus the devised a system of government that would take advantage of that human nature. Instead, we hear things like, well, America rose. They, you hear uh, to tons of excuses. America rose on the back of slaves. America rose... Uh, because it uh, because of nasty nasty capitalism, you hear all of these excuses, yet uh, no, you can uh, not escape the fact. Those are easily debunked once you debunk those. You cannot escape the fact that we would not be here right now if it weren't for what you just pointed out, Steve. And and I'll even let me just grant the snowflakes all their their phony baloney talking points. Mm-hmm. Where does the freedom come from from for them to to air their ass asininity? Without freedom, without, without expectation of reprisal. Where does that freedom come from? The very notions that they are rejecting. Did, did that come from the slaves, too? Uh, yeah, that, the, yeah. By the way, where, where, did, where, did, where did the power to write the historic blight, evil, and wrong of slavery come from? Where did that come from? Again, it came from the very framework that they are rejecting. The very framework they're rejecting is why they get to reject it. That is the beauty of our system of government. Aaron is exactly right, Todd. It takes into account that it is that we are an imperfect species and therefore let freedom ring so that when we get it wrong, the means to self-correct exist. Well, there's been great work, work done by this in the past and certainly before this election. How much the various temper tantrums on the left, their ability to continue without swift reprisals, rely not only the, the generally the sweeping history of civilization, but ironically, the great progress made in establishing individual dignity by, wait for it, the church, the, the church allowing people to go on their own journey to seek God as they see fit. Look at the great founding, and, and we obviously, and you've documented this many times, we obviously in founding this country did not agree on that. The Quakers, Roger Williams in Rhode Island, we had many different versions of that. 
But uh, that is one of the great ironies, that, that if, if the left could just calm down its temper tantrum, we can agree greatly on many issues and not be threatened by the existence of God. So you, you want to grow. Let's go back to where we started this conversation as we wrap it up now. You want to grow that base it's going to take to hold on to the gains you just made on November the 8th? Here's your target demo. They're, they're, you've, you've squeezed as much, as much as you're going to get out of your existing coalition. Your target demo are those millions of people who didn't vote in 2016 but voted in 2012. Like those 100,000 people in Michigan who voted but didn't vote for president at all. That, those people are probably not with us. But they, are, they, were, as they were disillusioned and disgusted enough by the empty utopian promises of progressivism that they're now open to be sold. Can we make the sale? Can we make the sale? Can we close the sale? That's what I'm interested in in the future, because that's going to determine the future. Listening to Steve Dace. How conservatives can win again. The Steve Day Show. All right, let's play a little buy, sell, or hold each week here on the Steve Day Show. Our producer Aaron throws out some provocative statements. Todd, you and I will decide. Whether we're going to buy that, we're selling it, or we're going to hold. We've got to wait and see. And then, of course, we'll give some uh, hopefully valid reasons for why we chose what we chose. First up tonight, Obamacare, when it's all said and done, won't really be repealed. It'll just be end up renamed and repackaged so Republicans can take credit for it. Sell. Um, I think... There is some truth in this statement. Uh, Things like the elimination of pre-existing conditions and stuff, once those carrots are dangled, you cannot take them away. But I do think you will see an outright repeal. I do. I think think President Trump wants to be able to say, and I think the Republicans in Congress want to be able to say, what have they taken, like 56 votes on this in the last few years? Mm -hmm. Crazy amount of repeal votes. I mean, even McConnell said the day after the election, we're going to repeal Obamacare. I, I think they want to be able to say we did it. So I think there will be a clean, relatively speaking, uh, a clean repeal bill. I think the replacement bill might be passed simultaneously or five minutes later. I think it will include several provisions that are inherent to Obamacare. So we may be talking somewhat semantics here, but I do think President Trump is going to sit in the Rose Garden and sign a repeal bill of Obamacare, Todd. I think you're right, but I'm going to hold it because I don't trust how close to a wash this thing is ultimately going to be. You alluded to, I think, in many of those votes. How many of them were show votes? Well, all of them, essentially. And how much of this is ultimately going to be a show vote? This should be so easy to tear this thing uh, down uh, on principle. But I don't—I have been—I have gone so far in the direction 
Uh, you should be so proud of me, Steve. Total depravity in this last year. I, I just, I need to see it. We are switching sides here. Yeah. I am now Erasmus, and you are now Luther. Yes. Stick around long enough, you'll live to see everything. Really, I, what have we seen that makes us trust that? Yeah, this is so obvious, but so is the Planned Parenthood videos. So has so many other things. I need to see it. I need to stick. I am doubting Thomas now, basically. <laughs> I need to stick my finger in the side. Next statement, uh, Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries Commissioner Brad Avakian will stand trial in the next three years for charges relating to the violation of sweet cakes by Melissa owners Aaron and Melissa Klein's First Amendment rights being violated by his said Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries. Well, this is some of the best schadenfreude of this election. Was yeah. this guy losing mm-hmm. his 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 bid on to November a the eighth? Republican 8th. in Oregon. Yes, I'm going to say hold because I want to see who the AG is. Do I think Attorney General Cruz could bring charges against such an individual to make an example out of him? I do. Like, I think it's possible Attorney General Sessions may do so. In fact, maybe it's even more possible Attorney General Sessions would. The one thing we should say about Cruz is he will be concerned um, not just in using the office to defend the constitutional liberties of others, but in expanding its powers to uh, an extent that it could be used against people's constitutional liberties later on. So I'm going to say hold, Todd, because I want to see who the attorney general of the United States is going to be first. I don't think it is without occasion to move forward with such a lawsuit, but I am going to say sell because we this wouldn't be a witch hunt to do so but because we need to set a different example in the face of the onslaught of the uh, rainbow jihad's witch hunt we need to show a better way we need to show that there's many there's a possibility for a far greater discussion after the civil war what was lincoln's quote about ill will towards you know what i'm talking about with uh, malice toward yes, none that, and, charity toward, and charity towards we, all yeah we need to okay you know what you did this to us this is us showing you how to turn the other cheek and reset this thing in terms of the great debate we are supposed to be having. I think, I think A.G. Cruz would be much more interested in that conversation. Um, but I, I, I also think new attempts to do what this guy in Oregon did under Cruz as an AG, would not be tolerated. And let me right? echo what you said. What I said, I, I can see it now that I said it. I, I don't mean to be Pollyannish. When Ted Cruz is at his best, he has the conversation I'm talking about. He maintains a level of decorum and friendship while just dominating a discussion and winning the debate. That's what I mean. Fantastic beasts, and where to find them will have a huge opening weekend, but won't do anything after that, comparatively speaking. Ah, uh, sell. So. I think it'll have an opening. Thanksgiving coming right after that. It's going to be number one for a few weeks. It'll be number one until Rogue One, I think, comes out, which is second week of December, I believe. So I think it's looking at at least um, at least a two-week run as the number one movie in America. I say sell as well, but you, you've talked about how... Uh what movie did you just say was did it? Oh, Rogue One. Terrible marketing job. And you've said that about other movies. I, I I have no idea what this movie is about. Is it just enough that it's going to be Harry Potter that they don't have to have a good trailer? What is this about? Well, you know, you're, he we got he's the Harry Potter Harry, yeah, pa- Harry Potter Harry, Harry Potter slappy here on the show. Mm-hmm. My, all I know is this is well, it's a cash grab, but so is every movie. But it's a prequel series written by J.K. Rowling herself, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And it's a five part series. I didn't know that. That essentially takes us up to uh, 1945, which was the last 
great showdown with a dark wizard prior to Voldemort. And it was, it was, uh, oh, I yeah, said Gandalf, Voldemort. but it was, um, uh, uh, a Dumbledore. Dumbledore, yeah. who's the, who is the hero that, uh, does away with, uh, Grindelwald, the, the, Grindelwald, yeah. the, mm-hmm. uh, the dark wizard in, in that time period. That's my understanding. That's what I read online. I don't know if that's true. That sounds right. You don't know, Aaron? Uh, no, I haven't looked into this uh, as much as I should. Hold on a second. My Harry Potter slappy status is um, going down the toilet right now. Are you dating? Uh, n- is there a girl around? Because <laughs> when a guy falls off the slappy wagon, whether it's his favorite ball team, come on, am I lying, Todd? I've, I don't even know what my team looks like. Right, when, 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 when a guy falls off the slappy wagon, whether it's it's fanboy, whether it's his favorite sports team, what is always the reason for it, Todd? Always. Chicks, man. Every single time. Every single time. So is there something we need to know? Uh, there may be. I'm going to leave it at that. Wow. Right now. Buy, sell, or hold on Aaron's love life, Todd. Where are you going with that? Oh, Oh, uh, hold. (laughs) More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Selectblinds.com. Liberty's Bat Signal, the Steve Day Show. All right, a couple more for some buy, sell, hold this week. Now that we've made Aaron completely uncomfortable. Go ahead, Aaron. Thank you, Steve. Uh, We will see another NCAA-themed sports video game at some point. Uh, Buy. I'm selling. I just... There's way... out of hope. Way too much money to be made. You think so? Not to have... Oh, yes. You think so, yeah. There's way too much money to be made not to do it. I I don't know how far off we are, but I'm going to say buy. There's way too much money. We might still be another two or three years to get all the legal entanglements and everything out of the way. Um, They're going to have to figure out how to compensate the players for the using of their likeness and their number, and they should be. This is America. They should be compensated. They're adults. I but but Todd, we're going to see the return of the NCA sports games. There's just too much money to be made. I can't do better than that. Of course, we're going to buy. I mean, we are talking about to the detriment of the sport. Even we're talking about you know taking games on a regular basis, maybe putting a team in London. The almighty dollar rules all manner of decisions, even when it's not ultimately good for the game. And I'm not saying that in this regard. I agree with your premise about they deserve money, but Benjamins. Uh, 2016 Heisman Trophy winner, San Diego State running back, Donnell Pumphrey. Sell, no chance. Even with the outcome tonight? Uh, even with the, no chance. I, I, I don't even think it's a lock he'll get invited to New York. Um, I, he's, he plays for a non-power mm-hmm. conference school, and he didn't come in with the kind of hype that uh, you know a former San Diego State running back, Marshall Falk, had when we were kids. Uh, he's not... His team's not ranked in the top twenty-five, so he's not he's not he's not on you know one of the celebrated uh, small mid-major schools like Houston was at the start of the year, or Boise State typically is year to year. I mean, look at look at Keenan Reynolds of Navy last year. I think is a great example of why I think this. Keenan Reynolds set records no one ever thought would be broken. Uh, the most touchdowns ever scored by a college football player in a career. He was at the Naval Academy. 
at a time, you know, of patriotism and America at war. He is the all-American story, played for four years. He's with a national program that was on TV at Navy almost every single week. And there was even a movement, a viral social media movement, to get him enough support to at least get him an invite to New York for the Heisman Trophy. And they couldn't do it with the quarterback at the Naval Academy. I don't know how you're going to do it with the running back at San Diego State, Todd. You absolutely sell. And with Jackson's uh, performance tonight, unless he pulls out a miracle tonight, in which case it's his, but this makes it all the more likely if he has a huge game against Ohio State that they're going to go defense again at Michigan and Jabril Peppers will win the Heisman Trophy. Well, I, this, game for, for, yeah. this game tonight for Lamar Jackson is his James Comey letter. Can we just be honest about yeah. that? And, the, and, this is his Comey letter. This thing was done, and then James Comey sent well, See that it's Tom Herman, the Houston coach, sent a letter tonight. All right? So, yeah. One more quick one. Tony Romo will retire as a Dallas Cowboy. Sell. Too valuable of a commodity, too much money under the cap, the cap, and he can still play at a very high level. There will be a market for him somewhere. What he said. Agreed. Hour two is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. You cannot stop him. You can only hope to contain him. This is Steve Dace. Now for something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. And this is the Nightly Buzz, where we go back and take a look at some of the headlines we didn't have a time to get to earlier in the show, as reported to us by our producer, Aaron, courtesy of his checking out your social media, your water cooler. He's that lingering, creepy guy there at your job. He's got those headlines, and we've got the hot takes. I also smell bad. Uh, first story, Christian persecution around Any the wonder, world. And ladies, and he's single. Oh, is it any wonder? You know it. First story, Nicholas Kristof wrote the following in an op-ed for the New York Times. We progressives believe in diversity, and we want women, blacks, Latinos, gays, and Muslims at the table, so long as they aren't conservatives. Universities are the bedrock of progressive values, but the kind of diversity that universities disregard is ideological and religious. Again, that was an op-ed in the New York Times, of all places. He is correct. This is exactly what I said on PBS last week. Verbatim. Nicholas Kristof is correct. On the left, they define diversity by your external identity. Or if you belong to a minority religion. Or if you have an aberrant behavior, social behavior. But most of America defines diversity by their internal value system. And so what is largely missing from these newsrooms? People who think like we do. So, yeah, Todd, I mean, he, congratulations to Nicholas Kristoff of the New York Times. He's telling the truth. As have some others that we uh, mentioned earlier this week. Uh, from CBS, there was one, a gentleman I never heard of. They, they've done some great work. But here's what needs to happen now. Act on it? Yeah. 
I spent 12 years at the Des Moines Register, called a lot of names, kept in the corner because I told them this day after day after day and they didn't listen to me. Christoph and others have the ability to make something happen on this front. Talk to the people who sit in the glass offices up there and say, you know what? I like being a journalist or I like writing uh, far left stuff. But you know what? Papers are dying. And if writing uh, far left stuff can only happen if there's some far right stuff out there, too. Let's do this thing. In fact, that's going to be a better product. What we need to create is something where people wake up in the morning and say, you know what? I got to go find out what that newspaper is doing because that's the best conversation pound for pound there is. Right now, people are tuning out because there is no conversation. There's mm-hmm. just a lecture, and it's a bad one. Mm-hmm. And they've heard it all before. President Obama was in Germany where he proceeded to lecture President-elect Donald Trump on not caving to Russia. He said, uh, quote, we should all hope for Russia that it is successful those things are not something that we can set aside. Then he added, I don't expect that the president-elect will f- exactly follow our approach, but my hope is that he does not simply take a real politic approach and suggest that, you know, if we just cut some deals with Russia, even if it hurts people or even if it violates international norms or even if it leaves smaller countries vulnerable or creates long-term problems in regions like Syria, that we just do whatever's convenient at the time. Iran deal, anyone? Bueller... You know, you, you know, that reminded me of reminded me of when we were doing the debates live and Trump would get done speaking and you would say, I have no idea what he yeah, just I, said. I, there. I really I don't know. <laughs> I you know, I, I was one of the first people he talked to in the media about running for president three years ago. We interviewed him numerous times. We, we've we've covered him for the last three years. I have no idea what his foreign policy views are. I, I really don't know. And, and I don't I don't. This is I'm not this isn't I'm try, not trying to be snarky. This isn't tongue in cheek. I'm not trying to be flippant. I'm not trying to put him down. I I really don't know. We were here live for every debate both in the primary and also in the general except for the couple that were on weekends. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, we listened to the entire hour he did at the or the half hour he did at the uh, uh, the the Armed Forces Forum they did after Labor Day, right? With uh, with, uh, with Matt Lauer was the MC. I I don't know what his foreign policy views are. I, I really don't know. I don't. Now, I'm all, I will say this, too. I, I don't believe you can be ideologically dogmatic in this era of foreign policy. Because you're not, you're not dealing now on a world stage with, with um, a singular entity as an, that, that is opposite you as a superpower like the Soviet Union. And so uh, their mission and motives are clearly defined in the block of nations within their geosynchronous orbit are clearly known. Um, you're not dealing with, you know, this isn't the era of the Habsburg dynasties. And so these are largely colonial clans spread throughout Eurocentric empires around the world that have similar value systems. They're just competing for wampum and for commodities and for real estate. We are now living in a, in a world of decentralization and radical Islam, which means on a daily basis, the values that you are interacting with could align with yours or be anathema to yours. So I think it's very dangerous to go into this with a, 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 a dogmatic preemptive view, a dogmatic neocon view, a dogmatic pacifist view. I really do think you have to take these on a case-by-case basis almost. 
Yeah, I think with the underlying thing being obviously what's best for America and her interests. What you're saying is when we used to go to war, you know, the overlapping circles of Western civilization nations, eventually France and Europe yes. uh, and England got together because yes. they did share enough of a, a culture here. Uh, Western civilization, i.e. Yeah, America they, they, and they, Islam they, they were, and the Middle East, France share nothing. And, France and England fought a war for 100 years over where to put the fence. But nobody argued how to define how to define a yard. Okay, they were just arguing about where the fence line was. We're not having those arguments anymore. I mean, the literal basic meaning of civilization as we've known it is up for debate depending on what part of the world you're addressing on a minute-by-minute basis. The caliphate and Western civilization almost have nothing to talk about other than which one wins. Exactly. Yes. A man is admitting that his fake stories were trumped up in order to cash in on the president-elect's gullible followers, and he might have accidentally helped the moron into office. This is from The Right Scoop. According to the New York Post, Paul Horner has spread a viral slew of stupefying news hoaxes over the years, including one doozy about how a three-million-strong contingent of Amish folks in Ohio helped propel Trump to the White House. His tall tales spread like wildfire and caught the attention of Donald's team, including his son Eric and his then-campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, who disseminated those information, or that information. It was uh, one of the more infuriating aspects of the uh, primary and the election, and this guy, Paul Horner, has now confessed to making a lot of this crap up. Well, we saw this, guys, during the primary. How many national reports, Printly, which was like PRNTLY, Red State Report, these were all scam sites. But how many times did we see them shared in our timelines, in our Facebook feeds? It was, it was legion. Yeah. And people just bought into this stuff. And, they, and it just, how, many, how many things did Jim Hoff, that Gateway Pundit, write this year that were just utterly proven undeniably not to be true regarding this campaign? And that, I mean, I, I, wish, this, I wish this weren't a problem. But it was more than a problem, Todd. It was a pandemic of, of people, you know, we used to laugh when the left used to make the Daily Show with John Stewart and treat it like it was real news. We saw this on our own side during this election. And what this probably says is something about the regular news as well, and how yeah. off the res- far off the reservation it is, so people believe it. I'm at the point where I don't believe anything online unless it's corroborated by multiple trusted people on Twitter. <laughs> nice. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. For critical thinkers only, The Steve Day Show. And we're back here on The Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Name of the book is This Will Make a Man of You. One Man's Search for Hemingway and Manhood in a Changing World. Frank Miniter is the author. He joins us tonight. And uh, Frank, it's good to have you on the show. How are you? Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me here. Well, Frank, you've written a book uh, about one of my favorite subjects, and that is manhood. I think you can tell a lot about a culture from the state of its men. First of all, do you agree or disagree with that? Oh, I agree. Absolutely. Why? Why? Uh, they're the stand-up center of, of the—and I don't just put men in this, but they're the stand-up center of pushing everything forward, standing up for ourselves and doing real things, not standing under the state and expecting someone else to do things for you. And all the things that go into that, 
if you don't have real men and, and real women, stand-up gentlemen, how do you have a functional society? Uh, you, you just don't. So it is the center of, of everything. When my uh, oldest daughter was, uh, was, was little, she's 15 now, but when she was a little girl, probably five, six years old, one day, Frank, she stumped me with a question. And she came up to me out of the blue, and she asked me, Daddy, what is a real man? And I, I did what every parent does in that situation when they are stumped by their kids and they're unsure how to answer. I said, what did you say, honey? To buy some time and to stall. And, and she said, no, what is a real man? And I thought about it for a second. This was the answer I gave. And I'd like to get your take on it. I said to her, a real man is somebody who does what he knows to be right, even when he doesn't feel like it. Because he loves the people he's doing it for more than himself. And I remember thinking, wow, that's pretty cotton picking profound. She just looked at me, nodded, and walked away. Like it really wasn't that big of a deal. I thought I had crossed like some kind of daddy Rubicon with that answer. But what's your take on it, Frank? No, that's a very, very good answer. That's a way forward. Uh, my answer to that question is a man with a code. Because if you have a code, you've thought about what your values are, what you stand up for, uh, who you stand up for, not just yourself, but everyone around you. You've thought about all those processes, all those philosophical questions. And that code, what it does is simplify all the things we have to do as men. So it makes it, makes it understandable because it, it's hard to understand exactly what to do in the great context of any situation. But if you are walking with a code, you're much more likely to do the right thing at that critical time, which is, which is every day in our life as far as I'm, I'm concerned. So I, I, I tell people, live by a code. And, and at the end of this book, I put a lot of codes and, because I think people should grow towards that and look at all these different codes and say, What's right for me and what isn't right for me? And some of them, uh, looking at these old codes, I mean, pirate codes and the Marine Corps Creed and all those kinds of things, and they're going to say, well, some of these aren't relevant to my life, but some are. And in the process of questioning that, you'll develop your own code. Is manhood still important? Or have we, have we evolved? Have we outgrown this now? Um, you know, there's 57 genders on Facebook. Um, there's, there's really nothing unique or distinct about masculinity. It's really not that important. Uh, right now, we, we, we talked about this in the show the other night, to, to, that there are males, I refuse to refer to them as men, there are males in Australia spending more on uh, looking pretty than their female counterparts. Is masculinity pass A, or is it still something that's vital and needed? Yeah, and, and the left wants to tell us that, that masculinity should be outdated and outmoded and gotten rid of. Even the word man itself has become a bad word. Uh, and that's torn down men in, in a lot of ways, and it's been going on since a long time. I, I point all the way back to 1955 uh, with that James Dean movie where he's, he's questioning what's manhood, and he asks his father, you know, rebel without a cause, and he asks his father, what does it take to be a man? And his father couldn't answer the question. Uh, and he's left there uncertain of what to do, and he never really is certain in that whole movie. And from that, that point forward, that, that question is really has not been answered by mainstream society. In fact, as we've gone on, they've attacked manliness more and more, and, and seen it as a synonym for a sexist and a chauvinist and all these kinds of things. If you say you're a gentleman, right away they assume you mean sexist and chauvinist and misogynist, which, which is actually the opposite of what those things ever were and are, and are supposed to be, at least ideally. So instead of cleaning up and giving us ideals, they've torn down the ideals, they've torn down the idea of being men, and they've given this generation nothing left to grab onto, at least the men in this generation. So they have nothing to reach up for, to grow up toward, uh, which is part of the reason I wrote this to make a man of you, was to find who those icons are that we're supposed to chase. And I found that 
in any real rite of passage in order to grow yourself into who you want to be. You have to start by, with an archetype, with an icon, with the ideals in order to push yourself upward. We're going to talk manhood some more with Frank Minitor right after this. to pry this microphone from his cold, dead fingers. This is Steve Dace. Powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Frank Minitor is here with us talking about his new book, This Will Make a Man Out of You. And, and Frank, you were telling us before the break that, that we need heroes. We need archetypes as men to model manhood to us. Who are some of those archetypes? What's that look like? All right. What is the archetype then? Well, you're going to find different ones in different parts of your life. I mean, I went to a military academy, and there my, my archetype at that point in time was to be the, the right cadet, right? And I boxed in Floyd Patterson's gym when I was a kid, and there my archetype was to be the ultimate fighter. You know, right now I'd say it's to be the author I want to be. But what I write about in this book in Pamplona was, is to be the ultimate bull runner, which is a, a different kind of rite of passage, but it follows the same rules all real rites of passage do. So as I entered that street, you enter the first terror and confusion any rite of passage has. Whether you go to boot camp or seminary school or football camp or whatever rite of passage you enter, there's always that first big hurdle you have to deal with, that first big fear. And in this, in this case, it was running with the bulls the first time, which people just break down around you. I mean, I've had people jump on my shoulders screaming in my ear. You know, that one, one person next to me lost it, went under the fence, and the cop told him, kicked him back out, said, you know, you can't do that. You have to, you're out in the street, you want to be a man and run with the bulls. Now you must be a man and run with the bulls. Well, this guy totally lost it under, under the fence again, uh, and the cop literally beat him up in front of everybody and threw him down on the side and said, anybody else. Yeah, there's, there's guides to any regard passage, and it's that, that fear you have to get through in order to grow through the, the other stages of any real rite of passage. So they're around us. You just have to know what the rules are, and that's why actually I laid out the rules in the table of contents of this book. So at any point in your life, you can look around and say, what do I want to be and how do I want to grow? And you can find these fun adventures for yourself. As long as you understand what you're pushing yourself toward, you'll grow. Why do men need adventure, Frank? It's, it's part of who we are. It's part of proving ourselves. It's part of standing up and being who we want to be. If we take away these adventures where a person, a man wants to go and push himself physically and, and so on through fear and other things, they're, they're just going to go and find unstructured ways, I mean, to do it themselves. I did some pretty stupid things when I was a kid, jumping off cliffs into lakes far below and you know, climbing free uh, without ropes on cliffs I shouldn't have been on, doing all sorts of other stupid things. Because I didn't have a, a lot of people showing me how to be who I wanted to be. I, I finally found it, as I mentioned a minute ago, in, in a boxing gym. Floyd Patterson, luck, I was luckily the, the, 
the former heavyweight champ actually had a gym in my hometown and had welcomed any kids in, and I found what I needed there and that role model, and I grew up through that, and that, that's what started to make me into who I became. But without that, without that structure, kids today, they're just lost. They're just walking around told not to be men, but not given these rites of passage that used to be there. That means society used to understand, but now no longer knows how to articulate to them. So they're lost trying to navigate to somehow get to manhood, and not many of them get there because without a guide, without a structure, it's just very hard for them to become useful and upstanding members of society. What I hear you saying is that we are created this way. We are made this way. We are designed this way. To deny that design will will simply just compel that design to manifest itself in a way that it was not intended to on the other end. Is that what I hear you saying? Oh, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not denying personal identity and genetics and all that kind of stuff. But you take the average person and you put them through, you help them prove themselves and give them a process to do that, and they, by and large, turn out better. I mean, there's a reason why boot camp is three months long. It's to break you down and build you up upon a greater ideal than you came in with, uh, that archetype of the ultimate Marine or however you want to put that. Uh, every real rite of passage is, is about that. And without those structures, without that understanding, without, by, with our society, what it's done, tearing down ideals and belittling all these kinds of things, you're left with, with nothing. So, right, I mean, any person, you can improve them, and the Boy Scouts will tell you that and so on. It's always been out there um, helping people become what they should become. It's just that, unfortunately, society today discounts it and doesn't understand it. You also mentioned men need a code. Why do men need a code? Why do they need structure? Why do they need honor? Why? You're going to find yourself any day in your life, but especially in those extreme situations, where you have to stand up and do the right thing. And it's not always the comfortable thing to do. And you're not always sure, and you don't have time to think about what the right thing to do is. But if you're living a code, you've already thought these things out. You're walking that in the footsteps of, of your hero. You know, you're on your hero's journey, as Joseph Campbell put it then you're going to do the right thing just by impulse because you've already thought those things out. You're already living that way. You're already going to do that, those right things. You're going to be that upstanding guy you want to be just because you've thought it out already. You've already practiced that. You're, you're much more likely then to be the hero of the moment because you're already living that way inside. Hmm. We need accountability, don't we, Frank? Oh, yeah. No, that's a big part of what's going on. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, look at the college kids today protesting on, on the Trump issue. You know, and I respect them going out there and protesting, but they don't know what they really want from, is what I'm seeing. They're upset. They're angry. I mean, they're having cry-ins and, and things at different universities. They really don't know how to adjust to this kind of thing because they haven't had to achieve and had to suffer and had to go through these processes. They, they just haven't grown into the people that, you know, that for, uh, earlier generations would have already gone through a process of maturity. You know, today we say people grow up too quickly. I don't think that's true. I think we're we're keeping them young too long. Prolonged adolescence, in other words. Oh, through the 20s, in some cases, for life. This will make a man of you. One man's search to find what makes men. And it is a pleasure to have you with us tonight, Frank Miniter. And this is a conversation our culture desperately needs to have. Good luck with the book. God bless, okay? Thanks, Steve. You know, one of the questions that, that we didn't have time to answer in this conversation is why it's important. And, and the reason why it is important is because there are certain things that the Creator endowed for men to do and to be. Just as there are certain things the Creator endowed for women to do and to be. 
men and women are equal. When Moses writes those words in the book of Genesis thousands of years ago, that is that that is a mind blowing statement. For for Moses to write, he created them male and female. He created them in his image. Granting, which is still something that's unique in much of the world now, granting equal status between men and women. But just because we're equal doesn't mean we're the same. Listening to Steve Dace. This show is dedicated to bacon every day. The Steve Dace Show. Let's get some reaction to what we just heard from Frank Miniter talking about manhood this hour on the Steve Day Show. And I think both of you guys have some unique perspectives because, first of all, you're both men. But, Aaron, obviously, you're a millennial. So you have all the generational baggage of, uh, that goes along on, with masculinity f- uh, with your era. I'm enjoying it every day. Yes. Todd, you and I are both Gen Xers. We have our own generational baggage. But, but you have four daughters. So you are seeing this exact conversation, but from the other side of the equation. I have two daughters, but I've got a son as well. So I'm working both sides of the street of this thing. But, but you are looking at your side of the species, I'm guessing with a bit of a, a wary eye, knowing that you're going to have four individual males at some point come knocking on your door and say, can I marry your daughter? Amen. And when I look at myself... It means they're going to find out the archetype of the man to choose through me. And it's interesting. The conversation we heard reminded me of something I saw earlier today before I came into the studio. Batman Begins was on. And there's the conversation between uh, Carmine Falcone and the young Bruce Wayne. And Bruce Wayne comes in. He's acting all tough. This is before he becomes Batman. And he's showing him, I'm not as scared of you. And he's not. But he's dumb. And Carmine Falcone calls his bluff and says, you know nothing about pain you know nothing about real want and so he realizes he's he's right so he gives his wallet and his coat away hops on a ship and goes off we as men we need to get out of our comfort zone ivy league people need to go the micro route and they need to do some dirty jobs the dirty jobs route they need to go you know read some philosophy read some history we need to get out of our comfort zone not just not just when we're young but perpetually, if we are constantly comfortable, we're not being men. Hmm. Well said, Todd. And uh, I couldn't agree more. And, of course, uh, we know that we as human beings are made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And that, that, that goes for human beings. But there are, there are two different kinds of human beings, are there not? I mean, unless you ask Facebook, but we, we won't get into that now. There's male and female. We were made for each other, but di- uh, we, we are no less equal but uh, to each other, but we have different jobs and different responsibilities. And I completely agree that, that the, one of the distinguishing characteristics of manhood is risk-taking. You have to be able to go out on a limb. You have to be able to um, p- perpetually lead. Those are some of the distinguishing characteristics of 
of, of manhood. And right now, I think we have a lot of people who are just fine with being comfortable, and that's a very, very dangerous place. We saw this before the show tonight in our Facebook live chat. And it, one of the first, and I continue to get this tweet email sent to me. It's too risky for Cruz to be Attorney General for Trump. R- really? Because let me tell you what I think would be too risky. Is if I was Ted Cruz, 45 and a genius, and I'm sitting there being a backbencher, pencil pusher in Mitch McConnell's Senate for the next six years, wasting the best years in the prime of my life, that would be too risky to me. Mm-hmm. That's the way men used to think. Now it's play it safe. No, be a man. You're listening to Steve Dace. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Back with Hour 2 here of the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Coming up a little bit later on in this hour, we're going to get into masculinity. What is the state of manhood in America and why does that matter? Also, if you missed my appearance... A couple of days ago on the Glenn Beck Radio program, we're going to play portions of that for you coming up in hour number three, courtesy of the Glenn Beck, easy for me to say, of the Glenn Beck Radio Show. So stay tuned for that coming up in hour number three. Interesting story, though, tonight from ESPN, because it goes along the lines of some in the media willing to do an introspection, a postmortem. Many not, but some willing to about where they're at. ESPN is hemorrhaging viewers. I mean, it's a pandemic, what's happening to them. And there's talk that they may have to reconsider their business model when we start, when we start going to complete a la carte, because I think we will see that here happen sooner rather than later. And maybe they will go to a model of, you just purchase ESPN for $4.99 a month. And you get their family of networks. Because they're also starting to lose leverage with cable companies. Hey, we get, a, we get a percentage of all of your subscribers because of the value of our network. The ratings decline has accelerated in the last few months. And the reason why that's noteworthy is this should be the boom harvest. It's football season. I mean, the highest rated thing ESPN does is NFL football. The second highest thing they do is college football. And by the way, they do Major League Baseball, the NBA, including the NBA playoffs and the MLB playoffs. And the highest thing they do is the NFL, and that includes the preseason. The second highest thing they do is college football. The third highest rated event they have is the draft, the NFL draft. So this should be, this, should, this is the money printing season, but it has not been. 
Jim Brady is the public editor of ESPN. Here are some comments that he made today. Quote, ESPN is far from immune from the political fever that has afflicted so much of the country over the past year. Internally, there's a feeling among many staffers, both liberal and conservative, that the company's perceived moved leftward has had a stifling effect on discourse inside the company and has affected its public-facing product. Consumers have sensed that same leftward movement, alienating some. For most of its history, ESPN was viewed relatively apolitical. Its core focus was and remains today, of course, sports. Although the nature of sports meant an occasional detour into politics and culture was inevitable, there wasn't much chatter about an overall perceived political bias. If there was any tension, if there was any tension internally, it didn't manifest itself publicly. Brady said these things to longtime ESPN anchor Bob Lee, who's one of the last remaining originals, going back to the Chris Berman, the original launch in 79. He admitted that ESPN, quote, has no diversity of thought. Brady said that a conservative employee told him, quote, if you're a Republican or conservative, you feel the need to talk in whispers here at ESPN. Now, one of ESPN's liberal personalities, which is to say, most of them, a woman by the name of Jamel Hill said, and I quote, this was her response to this from her editor. I would challenge those people who say they feel suppressed. Do you fear backlash or do you fear right and wrong? Unquote. Aaron, you threw up your hands because I know where you, this is where I was going to go with this. This is the way the left argues. To disagree with now, both sides do this to some extent. Because it's the human condition. But there is, a per, there is a perception that is inherent to progressivism. That to disagree means you are some lesser evolved being. So right away, you're a racist, misogynist, homophobic bigot. When I call President Obama a Marxist, I don't mean that. I'm not trying to demean him. Demeaning him would be the would be referring to him as the uh, you know the uh, he, the guy who the Kenyan that that's how you demean somebody. You want to demean Obama, you refer to him as a Kenyan. But calling him a Marxist is not demeaning him. That's his ideology. Any more than calling me a Christian fundamentalist, I don't feel I don't feel particularly demeaned by that. We put the fun and fundamentalism around here. That's what I do. I, I believe in the fundamentals of Christianity. I'm not a fundamental. I'm, I'm okay. It's not a put down to me. You want to call me puritanical? Well, I'm okay. They only founded the cotton picking country. I can cut me down with that all you want. I don't find it a put down. I'm not, I'm not, Marxism is the president's ideology. He's proven that repeatedly. That's not dehumanizing. That's what he believes. But when you, when you say someone, to, if they disagree with you, they're a racist, misogynist, homophobic bigot, that is demeaning them. There's, and after you've dehumanized somebody, there's no place for a conversation or dialogue to continue from there, which is the goal of the dehumani- dehumanizing. So we don't have to have a conversation and argument. It's over the minute I decree what I think. So her response is exactly what this Republican staffer at ESPN was complaining to his own editor about. She just turned right around and confirmed it. The assumption is, if it's what I believe, it is right. Talk about being narrow-minded and bigoted and intolerant, Todd. It doesn't get any more of those things than that presumption, does it?
No, and what's completely ironic about this is that sports is supposed to be the ultimate place where we reflect on good old-fashioned competition. Me versus you. Shirts versus skins. Let's line up and see who's best. Sports commentators should get that. It's the essence of what their job is. And like you've said, they've outflanked MSNBC on the left of eliminating competition. And I don't mean business success. I mean not having the conversation at all and simply living in your safe Say space bubble. There is an answer for what this is. It, it she likes to fashion it as courage, and in her mind, she thinks it is. It is nothing short of cowardice. That's ex- exactly right. And I go back to something that you said a few uh, weeks ago, or maybe it was just last week, uh, Todd. That um, uh, these snowflakes on college uh, campuses, these progressives, they're they're all the same. They're not really snowflakes. They're all just bullies because of this. And we're seeing the exact same thing from the general mainstream media after this uh, after this win. It's instead of um, uh, most of them just taking a look at themselves and saying, "Wow, what did we do wrong? How can we communicate with these people better? How can we give these people a vo- voice better?" Instead, it's like yeah, what I've been saying about you, homophobic bigot, fill in the blank. That's been right all the time, all all, um, all this time, and it's even more right because of this, uh, because of the results of this election. It's the same thing. There is no room for dialogue because they think and they believe with all of their hearts that they're right no matter what. Because as you pointed out, Steve, they decreed it so. Therefore, it must be. This is the issue inherent with why they are hemorrhaging viewers, readers. This industry is, is what we're talking about here. It's the idea that I don't even have to consider another viewpoint. And where, where this really, I would argue where this really began to blow up, where ESPN crossed the line was Michael Sam two years ago. I mean, they, they essentially went on a jihad for him. And I and, and and to sit there on a Sunday afternoon to watch the to watch the draft with your kid, and watch a homosexual make cake cake smash makeout session on ESPN. I think that's where they crossed the line, and I think all the stuff we've seen with Colin Kaepernick and everything since then is really symptomatic. I think that was the Rubicon moment for ESPN. You're describing propaganda. Yes, that's exactly what it was. The rea- there, there is nothing about Michael Sam at all being one of the last 20 players picked in the entire NFL draft. There's, there's, there's no, nothing of significance at all other than he likes to have sex with guys. So he's one of their protected classes. So we overlooked the fact he was like the 230th player chosen because it doesn't matter how good of a football player he is. It matters that he belongs to one of our protected progressive classes. Which, by the way, is exactly how you create a backlash that doesn't allow a young man like Michael Sam to go out there and prove himself on the football field. You turn him into a political football. And a bunch of teams then become scared to draft him because they're worried if they cut him, are they a bunch of bigots who get glitter bombed at their corporate offices? What's that whole thing about you reap what you sow again? Somebody remind me of that. Listening to Steve Dace.
about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back here with Hour 3 of the Steve Day Show. Whether you like it or not, you're on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. Let us know what you think about what we think. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Coming up later on in this hour, in fact, about 15 minutes from now, in case you missed it on Tuesday, I was on the Glenn Beck program we're going to let you hear some of that uh, conversation between Glenn and I, courtesy of uh, the Glenn Beck Radio Show. That's coming up here in about 15 minutes. But first, it's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. It's that time of night when Aaron takes the reins. He decides what we're going to be talking about for the next few minutes because he gets to ask us three questions about any three things. There is nothing off limits. But there is one rule. He has to answer the same questions that he asks of us. Thank you, Steve. Now, on Tuesday night when you were gone, we had a representative from uh, Alliance Defending Freedom on to give us an update on the case of Baronel uh, Stutzman. She's the Washington florist who basically, well, she did have her business taken away from her because of her beliefs on marriage. And following that conversation, Susan wrote to me, and I think she meant well, but I wanted to get your take on what she to- uh, sh- what she said to me. She said, I feel sorry for the florist lady that is in trouble for not doing the flowers for the same-sex wedding. She set a dangerous precedent. She was close friends with the guy, did other arrangements for him, but balked at doing the wedding. It is really dangerous to be friends with someone like that when you are a Christian. The Bible is very explicit that two people can't walk together unless they are in agreement. I really hope that works out for her, but take heed, Christians. Do not be close friends with someone who does not share your worldviews. Your thoughts on that? Um, I, I think that, with all due respect, I think that's a misunderstanding of that principle. Uh, being unevenly yoked is is different than, uh, which is the biblical expression that is often used in cases like this, is different than being friends with people that are um, have, are unbelievers or ha- or have different beliefs. The an example of of her being out of bounds in this relationship would have been if this gentleman were her business partner, for example meaning they were in some level of covenantal relationship with one another, and, and, and clearly their values are different, clearly their ideals are different. So it's just it's a ticking time bomb. It's a matter of time before those things uh, collide. Our, our form of government originally was set up to actually help us navigate situations like this. In anticipation of pluralism, e pluribus unum, for example, so in anticipation of a plurality, Okay, I mean, that's why I mean, that, that's that's why we set up a system based on meritocracy, um, uh, you know, freedom of conscience, things of those natures, competition, so that if, if you were engaged in something that someone else thought violated their conscience and they didn't want to be a part of it, 
there were other places for you to go. And in fact, in Baronelle's case, she actually tried to hook this gentleman up with a florist that was willing to provide the services for him. So while on our show we applaud efforts for believers to do their best in a fallen world to try and live in a more sacred way in a in an era of sacrilege my opinion is todd with all respect i think that's a misunderstanding of that biblical principle it's very much a misunderstanding in fact it's a denial of the great commission so it leaves me a little sad that somebody has spent enough time with scripture that they think it's they are fundamentally in the right which the great commission be to go ye into all the world teaching them the commands that i have given you right first to jerusalem then judea then samaria then to the ends of the earth the great commission is not to set up a bunch of de facto leper colonies where the people that aren't up to your standards uh live and leave you alone listen and listen guys the catholic is telling you this because because they're, they're part of the church. They tried this. They were called monasteries, and they were a colossal failure. And sooner or later— the Some s- were a colossal s- failure. Sooner, sooner or later, as a movement collectively, what ended up happening is the sin they tried to move away from ended up finding them there. That is true. It's yeah. almost like uh, human nature or something affects all of us. Yes. And uh, I, by the way, we do this, too, in, in the Protestant community where homeschooling is more of a— is more of a is more of a, a movement than than it is in the, in uh, in Catholicism. Not that you don't have Catholic homeschoolers, but it's just more prominent amongst evangelicals. And I tell evangelicals who want to homeschool all the time, why do you want to do it? Because we're homeschoolers. I believe in it. But the reason we do it is so that we have the opportunity, Amy and I do, to equip our kids to engage the world, not to hide them away from the world. There is a difference. We don't homeschool our kids so that they'll, they'll cuss less, they'll have less sex, they'll smoke less, they'll drink less. In other words, we're not doing this for behavior modification. We're doing this for equipping for the, for, so they can do that great commission. To unleash commission. them on the world. Yes, that's exactly why we're doing it. You bet. That is a great distinction uh, to make, Steve, seriously. Um, yeah, I was going to go exactly to the principle of, of unevenly yoked. And, I mean, uh, Christ himself, um, I mean, he made friends. He talked and uh, he commanded others as well to uh, sit with and um, uh, go. And, well, like you said, Todd, the Great Commission to go all, into all the world and make disciples of all men. So this is, I mean, this is, I think, um, again, kind of a... a at least a misunderstanding and at worst a contradiction of the Great Commission. Uh, next question, Caleb Fields uh, asks, uh, which, by the way, Caleb emailed me, Aaron at stevedace.com, this question. If you have a question you'd like to do submit, you, you Do you ever ask us any questions anymore? You just sit back and just let them do all the work for you? Basically, the latter. Autopilot, okay. baby. Yeah. Autopilot. But let's uh, not abuse this privilege that I am permitting. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, Caleb asks, how likely do you think it is that Trump will face impeachment within the next two years? If he does face impeachment, what will be the reasons? Will it be for actually fighting for conservatism, or will it be because of his abrasive persona? I don't know. I, I think that um, I, I think I'm done underestimating and projecting where Donald Trump is concerned. Uh, I, I learned my lesson on November the 8th, and I think we should. We are all better off now if we just sit back and allow events to play themselves out rather than trying to project our own expectations or narratives upon them and then react accordingly on a case-by-case basis. And, and that's not just um, my own personal advice. That is, that is my counsel to many members of this audience and, and many in the like-minded community. Just as the great prophet Aaron Rodgers once said, 
relax. And it's hard to calculate this because there's two independent factors going on there. That being said, the, the Bovada in Vegas has five to one odds on Trump being impeached right now. Oh, seriously. yeah. They do, yeah. yeah there, there's Trump and his ability to be a grown-up, and there's the left's ability to be a grown-up. Good, well said. If the, if, if the left actually learns some things from this and does grow up, uh, independent of what Trump does or does do, I think the odds are less likely that they try to impeach him. If they're just what they cl- clearly are now and are showing themselves to still be after this election, I th- think the odds are higher. But that's independent of what Trump or does do. Then you have to factor in who he decides to be and how, how long he can actually look like something resembling a statesman versus a nut job. Hmm. That was well said. You want to give me credit for the last one? Yeah, that, that was, was well a helmet sticker. That every time. once in a while, I show up. That was good. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. See you in 2017. I, I don't know either. I mean, I think the, the, the most, <laughs> the, the the most, um, uh, probably the most likely thing any president would be impeached for is challenging the system nowadays. I, I don't think if if Trump just kind of uh, sticks with the status quo, I don't think he he's going to be impeached. Uh, question three: Game to be at this weekend. Um, the first place Lions. You know what? I'm going off the board. Washington State at Colorado. Both those teams have been really good this season. They are playing at a high level. They have two of the best records in college football this year against the spread. I've been. To, I went to Boulder last fall with the Cruz campaign when I was on the debate prep team. Phenomenal, beautiful campus, particularly now this time of year. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off the board a little bit. I'm going to say Washington State at Colorado. I do. I like that answer. Well, hey, you were right about one crazy one. Didn't you, like, pick Navy over somebody, like, four, three weeks ago, and you Houston? nailed it? Yeah. Uh, but I like th- – this is what's great about <clears throat> college football. Those, I mean, looking back on our, the years where there was a, a Colorado and Eric Bieniemy, you know, that however long window where they were just at the top of their game mm-hmm. and Rashawn Salam was – And I, Darian Hagan so and all those guys. Yeah, I like Cordell the, Stewart, yeah. I mean, these are once great national champion competitive schools that are now ascendant. That's fun to watch again. So I'm just going to echo what you said. I like that game. West of Virginia at, uh, or Oklahoma. At oh, that's West a good Virginia. one, too. Because one thing you know, win or lose, they're playing John Denver mm-hmm. after the yeah. game, and they're burning some couches in Morgantown. You know that. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to Steve Dace. Never attack what you're not willing to kill. This is Steve Dace. And welcome back to the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Hour 3 continues on a Thursday night. Steve is uh, out for the rest of the night. I'm his producer, Aaron McIntyre. Steve was a guest recently on the Glenn Beck program, where he uh, talked about a variety of things. Most of all, what happens next for the conservative movement, what's going on with Trump's administration, and for the rest of this hour, we'll be playing some clips of Steve's appearance. We'll start with the Glenn asking Steve about uh, where things stand with conservatives. Welcome to the studios. Glad you're here. Um, you, um, uh, you called together a little get-together of some of the people who were never Trump and reluctantly Trump, um, and... 
and wanted to have a conversation with people of where we go from here. What are you trying to accomplish? Just that. I think that we have got to have a time period where um, there can be some family healing going on after what's transpired over the last year. And I think I told you yesterday that I, I didn't really truly understand how difficult the last six and seven months has been because it's not new necessarily for me. I'm kind of one of those grassroots rabble-rousers anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so being on the, on the outside looking in of some of my own friends is almost like a state of being for me. But this took it to a whole new level. And I really wasn't aware until it was over just what the weight of what the last few months was like feeling like every day I was arguing with members of my own audience, um, you know, people who put food on our table, who mm-hmm. support, that support us, that make it possible for us to do things like this. Mm-hmm. Arguing with, with our own peers and our own friends. How many tweets I composed that I had to delete to my own friends because I just couldn't handle some of the things I was seeing and then wondering how often they were doing the exact same thing to me, right? Mm-hmm. And when I got up the next morning, I was like, holy cow. It was like Katrina and the waves. That one I'm walking on sunshine song came on. It was like this weight is gone. And, and I think there needs to be, though, some time to assess where we're at. Because I think strategically we are in a place that we've never been in before as a movement. And that is taking for granted that a conservative movement even still exists, which I have my doubts about that. I, I think we need to also discuss what does conservatism even mean? I was on C-SPAN for an hour the week before the election, and I got that question. And I defined it as I'm a conservative because I'm trying to conserve the things that history has proven are what's best for the human condition. And black man from Detroit calls up and says, I'm a black man from Detroit and says, I've never voted Republican in my entire life. But if someone had explained it to me the way you just did, I might have I might have looked at this differently. I think our I think our damage or our brand has been damaged quite a bit in this race. And I think that. It's not a victory as much as a reprieve. I think everybody, to some extent, is ecstatic the Marxists are out of the White House, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean Donald Trump had a character transplant because the communists are gone. And I think you're watching his capricious, mercurial, unstable nature play itself out just in the court of owls that we're seeing get assembled here in, the, in, in almost this sort of Kremlin-esque intrigue about transition teams and who's in and who's out. I mean, we've this happens to all of them. Why is this as a negative? This happens, this happens all the time. The transition team, this, this seems normal to me. It, it, we're, on, we're on like our third transition team. <laughs> this thing's been on it for a week, you know, and, and there's mixed signals everywhere. And, and I, I just think that one that's, thing... That's how the Trump camp rolls, though. Well, yes. It, it, this happened the whole campaign. Because that's right? how he rolls. No, that's how he rolls. No campaign can rise above its own candidate. Right. The candidate is always the one responsible for the outcome of a campaign. We should I mean, say that you were a friend of you were a friend and supporter of Donald Trump's for a long time. For, at first, at first, a long time, maybe a relative term. Okay. Uh, what really changed my mind it, for good? You endorsed Ted, though, right? Yes, by I the, did. In fact, about the Iowa. In fact, there was. Caucus. I remember I called Ted up in um, in early July, and I told him I said. You know, I'm thinking about, I'm leaning going this way. I'm really thinking about it. You know, I think we do need to burn it down. I think we need something dramatically different. And about a week later, um, there was an event in Iowa where they had 13 of the candidates show up. It was a leadership summit, and I was the co-MC with Frank Luntz. 
And I'm sitting there backstage. I'm actually getting ready to meet with uh, Donald Trump again. He's going to come off backstage or to grab a private room, presumably to try to close me as a supporter. And I'm sitting there 20 feet from him when, when he talks about, I've never asked God for forgiveness because I've never done anything wrong. Right. Which was, to me, that was the big thing that stood out to me, even more than the McCain comments, as offensive as those were. But that was the thing like, wow, you just walked in a room of 3,000 evangelicals and dropped that bomb. You may not, you don't, you don't understand what you're walking into. And then, and then he talked about, well, I like soldiers who weren't captured. And I knew, or I suspected when they walked off of there, that, that him and his people were going to ask me, how do you clean up this mess? I didn't know what the answer was. So this is not a great, this was not a real men of courage moment, guys. I hit the eject. I just walked out. Because I, 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 I was like, I wouldn't know how to fix this. It's done. Don't fix it. Go home. Go back to Trump Tower. This is not fixable. Salvage your brand. So, but it didn't hurt him. It didn't. didn't. It didn't hurt him. You know why it didn't hurt him? Is Sam Nunberg, who is still a friend of mine, who was the guy that helped set up Trump's original campaign. Mm -hmm. Sam called me the next day. He had sent me a column that he had ghostwritten for Trump for USA Today in response to this. And it was, and he essentially had doubled down on it. And Sam, and, and, and the column was, hey, look at all the money I've given to veterans groups. Look at everything I've done. Who are you people to question me? And Sam said to me, he said, hey, Steve, do you like this column? And I said, I, I think it's forceful. I like it. He goes, well, I go, why? And he said, because I took everything that you put in your book, Rules for Patriots, How Conservatives Can Win Again, the previous book I wrote, and I used that to construct this piece and I am convinced that that is what turned everything around. The first time the media came at him. See, this election wasn't a repudiation of Hillary Clinton. I don't even think it was a repudiation of Barack Obama. I think it was a backlash repudiation of the media. And Trump ran against the media the entire time, ran against them in the primary. Fox tried to kill him in the first debate. They couldn't. And so they ended up shilling for him after that. I think he beat the media. And I think most people as conservatives, guys, define their conservatism not by an objective values or, or set of values but by opposition to the liberal media explain that meaning that i think we're so we don't we first of all we don't have an objective value system ask the average conservative why are you a conservative and you're probably not going to get a cogent answer i mean i i was i was listening to the roundtable you had before i had a, before i came on and you talked about the declaration of independence when I go around the country, if I teach in churches or I speak in churches or I preach in the church where I go to back home, if I ask believers, what is the foundation of the Christian faith? Almost every time they're going to tell me it's the Bible. No, it's not. Christ is the foundation of the Christian faith. Paul says, if Christ isn't raised, you're, then your preaching is in vain. You're all still dead in your sins. Christianity is about God supernaturally wove his hand into history to roll a stone away and bring a dead man back to life. Did that fact happen or not? If it did then the Bible is the clarification of how we, are the de how, how we are to then live in light of that fact. If it didn't happen, then we don't, we, we're free agents to free and make this up as we go along. The, the, the Christianity's foundation is Christ. The clarification is the Bible. That is the relationship, I believe, between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. The Declaration of Independence is the foundation of America. There is a God. Our rights come from him. Government's only responsibility is to protect and preserve those rights so we can reach our God-given potential. And that's it. That's it. That's all there is. There isn't any more. That's it. And then the, then the inevitable, inevitable questions that come along when we have conflicts. How do we resolve those things? The Constitution clarifies those conflicts. But the Declaration is the foundation. How often is that foundation ever uttered, ever, by any conservative? More of Steve's interview and appearance on Glenn Beck next. You're listening to Steve Dace. 
roasting them by their own petards. The Steve Day Show. And you are listening to The Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. This hour, going through an appearance Steve recently had on the Glenn Beck program. Here's part two. If you look at the Bill of Rights, everybody's looking for a place where we can come together now. Well, what are we going to do on global warming? What are we going to do about Planned Parenthood? What are we going to do about... We're so far beyond that. We are so... We have no cornerstone anymore we have no baseline anymore so we're just winging it on all of those there's nothing to be able to say well our polar star says that we have to do x what y, is the and Z. line of american culture what is that there is none there is none there is none yeah. and it is the idea of the declaration of independence and the framework of the constitution and i know i could go to any college campus i could go to berkeley mm-hmm and say, do you believe in freedom of press that press shouldn't be restrained? Now, this is changing, but right now we still have, yeah, press, uh, uh, there's a freedom of press. Yes, there's a freedom to assemble peacefully. Yes, there's a freedom to question the government. Yes, there's freedom of religion. That one is beginning to change, too, because we have abused both the press and religion. There is, an, there's a fascinating article at 538 today, which is Nate Silver's yep. site, and it talks about how Americans may be too religious to accept socialism. And if I wasn't down here hanging out with you all, with you all today, here's what I would do on my show if I was on the air on my show tonight. I would go on the air and ask my audience, why is this true? Why is America, t- why, how come if a people are religious, they will reject socialism? And I will guarantee you most of my audience, unless I explain it to them, well, no. Oh, no. And it's because, obviously, if the state's going to be God, there can't already be a God. Yes. That's why socialism either precedes or, or proceeds secularism every single time. I don't time. believe we are too religious for socialism. I don't think we are either. But I think, it, but here's what's fascinating. My point is how, how often we had to see, because Fox, Infowars, and Drudge wouldn't do it. And so we saw the mainstream media vetting Trump during the primary, according to his, his lack of conservative orthodoxy. The liberals were doing it. Now 538, a liberal analytical site, is now explaining to us essentially conservative apologetics, why we won't accept socialism because we're still too religious. They're making our arguments for us better than we currently make them. By the way, that's not good, guys. No, because they're making those arguments so they can understand yes. it and dismantle yeah, it. They're, dis- they're deconstructing us better than we are constructing ourselves. And, and the fact is, I-, I think that most people have been convinced by the left now that socialism and Christianity are, are one and the same. Yes. I mean, Jesus way too many people yeah. believe that Jesus yes. was a socialist. Yes. I, I just read another article yeah. about that. Yeah, easy. And the rest of the people think that socialism, and I'm not making this up, think socialism has something to do with social media. Yes. Socialism just means the promotion of Facebook and Twitter. I, I mean, there was a poll a few years ago that found something like six out of ten people that had, been, had held elected office felt the Electoral College was a place that you went to get trained on how to get elected. So there you go. So where do we go from here? What, what happens now? Because people are hurting, and they are looking for somebody, 
And they are dismissing people like, I mean, even those in the conservative movement are dismissing people like Steve Bannon. The media is now saying Steve Bannon is a bad guy. They're absolutely right on this. But the media has such a bad relationship with the American people. By them saying he's a bad guy only makes, only makes people say, well, he must be a good guy. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're doing their best to inoculate Steve Bannon from criticism at this point. Um, and I said this, PBS called me the day after the election, asked me to come on a roundtable and discuss from a conservative viewpoint how they missed the Trump phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And I, I pointed out to them that, you know, you guys are disconnected from America. And I asked them, how many people in your newsroom right now at PBS, how many are pro-life? How many of them go to mass once a week? How many of them go to church? How many of them even considered voting for Donald Trump? Like a single person. You guys define diversity by external identity. Most of America doesn't. Most of America defines their identity by their value system or what they think they need or want at the time. And so you are literally not talking to most of this country. And that's why you miss that. And, and you, I think, I, think I, I told them, I think, you got, I think people got the rise of Fox News wrong. That it wasn't that it was GOP TV, that's kind of what it is now, but that they, they, they talked about our values without suspicion. Yes. You guys do. Yes. This hour on the Steve Day Show, listening to a segments of an appearance Steve recently made on the Glenn Beck program, we'll have more in just moments. You're listening to Steve Dace. How conservatives can win again. The Steve Day Show. Hour three on the Steve Day Show continues. Steve is out this hour. I'm his producer, Aaron McIntyre. Going uh, through uh, portions of an appearance Steve recently had on the Glenn Beck program. Here's part three. Is there the possibility, because I think we should consider this, that we have been completely wrong. Is there the possibility that Donald Trump becomes Ronald Reagan? I think we should absolutely consider the possibility we've been completely wrong. Now, I, I, will, be, I will be surprised if we are wrong. And I think what we're seeing in the transition team indicates we're not. That this is material and because it's inconsistent. I mean, there, there is no consistent strain in who is surrounding him other than did you help me get to where I'm at? And if you're progressive Rudy Giuliani over here, and if you're evangelical pastor's kid Mike Pence over here, you help me get to where I'm at. So find a way to kind of work together. I mean, Reince Priebus, when he opens his mouth, the Republican machine we all hate comes out in every last syllable. So you're going to go on camera and eat the crap sandwich on TV, and Bannon's going to be my Rasputin in the dark room over here calling the Svengali shots. I mean, these two guys have literally nothing in common other than they both help Donald Trump get to where he's at. You believe that Bannon... Talk radio saying Bannon is okay. I, you know, I've met the, I think I met him once briefly, been interviewed by him twice on Breitbart Radio. All I know is what I've heard from other people. And all I've seen is what I've watched and witnessed Breitbart News become since it essentially became symbiotic with Trump. And, and I don't think, and I'm someone who used to be a regular reader, I don't think I've shared a link or clicked on a link at Breitbart in like nine months. I, I just got so disgusted by what I saw that it just, it literally became dead to me. 
Same with Drudge. I can't remember the last time I visited Drudge as a website. I just, I can't handle it. Um, so I just, to me, I just look for news and other sources. Yeah, hey, so we are. So um, you just don't think that there's a chance. He can I think there's it. a chance. I, I, listen, my worldview starts with God raises dead people to life. Right. Okay? So, I, then I, so to quote the great prophets at Dumb and Dumber, <laughs> I'm saying there's a chance. Okay? <laughs> there is a chance. But I, this is why I think we should step back and let it play itself out. Now, I think the early returns are mixed at best, and the pressures, the real pressure... What do you disagree with on his appointments? Um, I, I, first of all, I wouldn't have Rudy Giuliani anywhere near my administration. Why is that? Uh, because he's, he's the ultimate progressive Republican. That's why. I mean, well, I, no, I think Chris Christie is, but he's a close second. He's a close second. Yes. I, I think, I think the, the dynamic between, between rights and, and Bannon is terrible. Uh, it strikes me as trying to split the baby in half. And this is often, as someone that's worked on a lot of campaigns, this is why businessmen are often the worst candidates. Because they think it is like running a company, and it is not. You know, a CEO can't coin money. A CEO can't command an army. A CEO can't compel you to do something lawfully or unlawfully against your will. A president can. And I think that is where it's, it's, not, and it's not the same. It's, just because Steve Kerr is a great coach of the Golden State Warriors doesn't mean he can coach the Dallas Cowboys, guys. There's some skills that transcend, but they're totally different pursuits, different personalities, different activities. Uh, you know, and not, to, and not to mention, Trump hasn't always been successful as a manager. He's filed multiple bankruptcies. He's had several failures. It's not the same at all. And so when I see the previous Bannon thing, this is what it looks like to me. It looks like, hey, Reince, your, your reward is you get to go out there and be the guy on camera, and you're going to speak to McConnell and, and, and Ryan down there on Capitol Hill and I'll be Nicholas II over here in a corner dark room while Rasputin is whispering sweet nothings in my ear. And we'll essentially have our own little management team over here deciding which of your ideas we'll veto and which we won't. Who's actually in charge? The last thing someone with Donald Trump's temperament needs is to have the people facilitating him in an uncertain chain of command. I mean, when you, when, when you are as mercurial and capricious as he is, then the people around you have to be ironclad certain. You know, it's a little bit like in football. If the head coach is not Mr. Game Manager, then the assistant coaches need to be real X's and O's people. And if the head coach is an X's and O's guy, but not Mr. Light You Up in the Room when he's recruiting athletes, that means the assistant coaches have got to be in there and woo mama and, the, and, the young, and, and their baby boy on the recruiting trip. Trump is not Mr. X's and O's guy. He's not. Well, so someone else has got to do that. Well, who is that right now? I mean, you kind of have these two towers of Mordor here between with Reince and uh, and and uh, yeah, is Reince is Isengard and Bannon is Mordor. They have literally nothing in common other than they have a common, you know, uh, sentiment with Donald Trump that you can't run a government that way. Government is not like a business. It's but, not. but he's he's going to try to run it. I mean, one of the most amazing things I saw yesterday, um, and I said this wouldn't happen, this couldn't happen, and it's happening for him to ask for top secret clearance of his children they are denying that by the way i believe um for what it's worth well that's good yeah do you believe it well i don't know i mean yeah. I, I, I mean I, I it sounds it. I initial source last. was an unnamed source and i there's some way there's some reason to doubt it i, I think say. i think i think with stories like this guys we're gonna have to i think we're not dealing with a level of shall we say prudent communication we've ever seen from people in power before I think we're going to really have to sit back and wait until the final deed is done. Because if we react to everything these people say, we're all going to have coronaries. We're going to be like, this is the big one, Alice, by the time we get to 2017. <laughs>
So I think we need to just sit back. I think we have to like wait for them to actually sign the waiver before we react to the story like this. Because I think they will seriously just throw crap out there all the time, see if they can get away with it, see what the, what the, what the backlash is, and then say we never really meant it. It's been my experience. Again, I've had a lot of experience in politics. I've never seen anybody govern differently than they campaigned, ever. I think there's also a difference, gentlemen, between winning the presidency and being the president. When, when your life is defined by Maslow's hierarchy of needs, as Trump's entire yes. existence has been, yes. he has received now the ultimate self-actualization. Yes. Right? But here's the question. Next May, when the headlines are done and the, and the parades are over and the Organization of American States wants a nine-hour meeting with their emissaries in the White House... Does he really want to do that? Not a chance. Does he want to, or does he want to be down? Does he want to be teeing it high and watching it fly at the Mar-a-Lago with you know some Hollywood starlet? What would he rather be doing? I think that's you know I had, I had somebody offer me a job in New York City a few years ago and I tried really hard for it. I really wanted it. it was dry time in New York. I thought it'd be the greatest thing for my career. And then when I got back home and waited for them to make the decision, I recognized that what the commute would be like, the changes would be like, moving my family to New York City, how different the values were. And I realized, you know what, I think I wanted to win this job more than I wanted to do the job. I wanted someone to come to me as a guy and give me that helmet sticker and say, yeah, you got this accomplishment. But did I really want to do this when all the trades wrote about it and all the accomplishment stuff was done? Did I want to do that job? And I wonder if Donald Trump has truly considered, does he actually want to be the president? Does he want to do it? And that's why the people around him, who I think will really run the show, that's why it is so important. We'll be back to ramp the program next. You're listening to Steve Dace. Liberty's bat signal, the Steve Day Show. Back to wrap the show and uh, back for one more recent uh, snippet of Steve's appearance on the Glenn Beck program. What is the value system? This goes right back to where we started the conversation, guys. I mean, this is not a company. You're not selling widgets. The goal is not to end up in the black on a P&L statement. You're, you are governing a free people. And sometimes that means you're going to make decisions that are unpopular. And, and, and so... Is everybody in on advancing that value system? I know that we look back now on the Obama years, and we look at over 900 Democrats in the legislative branches across the country who lost their jobs under his presidency because of the voter backlash. I will guarantee you, though, almost none of them would ever publicly say they regret it because even though he did it by hook or by crook, he did more to advance a progressive worldview into our government than any human being has in the last century. And, and so, therefore, that's why they got into government, to advance that value system. They're on board with that. I think that my fear is that our side is going to embrace authoritarianism because they saw Obama get away with it. I think there were, and I hate to say this, but I think there were a lot of older white people that sit home and watch Fox, Fox News all day that got really justifiably angry at the last four years of what they saw Obama do. And they said, you know what, we need to go get our own version of that. Well, then, I, then I help cause this. I think we, you know, I, I think we all have, to some extent, played a role in this. I think so. Too. We're self-governing people, so there's no one, you know, yeah. nobody's absolved from it. I think that I, I've looked at some of the rhetoric I've used, that we have to win right now, or we're on the precipice of history. 
And I've wondered, what is a sense of urgency and when am I actually feeding into the sort of panic that causes people to embrace Do you think anybody on the left is starting to feel this way? Do you think they're self-examining like we are on the right? Uh, they soon will. First, they got to do their fake Tea Party AstroTurf, get rid of the Electoral College crap, which is just clickbait to raise money, basically. When they get done with that here in about six to eight months, we get into year two or three of a Trump presidency. I, I bet you they'll have a newfound respect for separation of powers and limited governments in some way. Yes, I do. It's interesting to me because the New York Times came out this weekend, and this is what they expressed to me. When they invited me up, 19 editors from the New York Times editorial board were there. And they wanted to know who we were, what, what is really happening, what's caused this, mm -hmm. uh, what their role was. They were very, I thought, introspective. And they said at the time, we know we have a problem. We're not connecting with the American people, and we need to change that. They came out this weekend and said that. I think there is some, there is some movement in trying to be better. I said to Judy Woodruff on PBS on the panel I was on this week, I said, Judy, where I come from, a dad who thinks it's a bad idea to have another creepy dude go into the bathroom next to his young daughter in the women's bathroom, that's called a parent, not a bigot. There's a whole other country out there. You guys don't even interact with it. You, you lecture to it. Yes. And so as a result, look they, down said, at it. they said, let's go find our own person that can smash these people so that we can at least get our, star our side of the story out there. And I think Trump wisely capitalized on that. Hope you enjoyed uh, hearing a few uh, snippets of Steve's recent appearance on the Glenn Beck program. We'll be back uh, tomorrow for Friday's edition of the Steve Day Show. Until then, Micah 6-8. You're listening to Steve Dace.